how are athletes coached, spurred on, encouraged and supported? How does it work for everyone? I'm Catherine Granger. This is Medals and More, the podcast getting behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. Coming up in the next half an hour, I want to find out more about the team behind the team. How do you set about creating this culture of success? How do you ensure all athletes or players are ready, both physically and mentally? And how do you bring athletes or even a whole organisation with you? Who better to ask than someone who's done it all? Former England opener, captain and director of cricket, Sir Andrew Strauss. Andrew, a joy to have you here today. Thank you so much. An absolute pleasure and honour to be on the podcast with oh, you. Oh, let's gush about honours between us. It's so exciting. <laughs> um, I want to take, we, know, we know your titles and your honours and your, your huge achievements. I want to take you back a little bit about when you were a young lad. Were you competitive? Were you sporty as a child? Yeah, I, I definitely competitive. You know, I, I had three older sisters who, um, I was going to say terrorised me. It's probably not the right way to put it, but they... Um, you know, they they were quite a lot older, so eight years, seven years, and five years, and we used to play a lot of tennis against each other. Um, and I just hated losing to them so much. Floods of tears every time. Um, and I played a lot of sports. So, you know, I was never one of these people that was, like, part of a English cricket pathway or anything like that. I was just playing loads of sports, enjoying them, you know, cricket, rugby, golf, whatever. Um, and it was only I, very late on in the piece did I start showing any real potential in cricket, probably when I was sort of 18, 19 at Durham University. And from then, everything snowballed quite quickly. And did anyone suggest anything before that age that you had, had potential or that you should consider this seriously? I think people would have seen me as just a good all-rounder. I was good at all... I, anything with the ball, I was pretty good at. Um, but, you know, maybe the disadvantage for me is I didn't focus, I didn't specialise early enough to become really good at one sport early. I look back on that and I'm quite thankful for it, actually, because maybe because I got to the top despite that. And therefore, you know, I was able to go to university and have a good time and just slowly get my head around what professional sport really is, rather than that being drilled into me from the age of 10 or 11. You're... you're hugely affected by your environment aren't you so when I got contracted to Middlesex young second team player in that Middlesex team at the time was some of the legends of English cricket so Mike Gatting and John Embry and Angus Fraser and Mark Ramprakash and Phil Tufnell he wasn't possibly the best example to follow <laughs> but um but you you start looking at them and going well what's so special about them you know what why can they reach the top and what's preventing me doing it and so you do become a little bit competitive and you're, you're really trying to be a sponge and learn off them and, you know, learn from your mistakes as well. And, you know, I suppose over time I just kept improving. You know, I wasn't brilliant to begin with when I started playing professional cricket. I was, I just kept making very slow incremental improvements and gradually sort of found myself you know, next in line to play for England, and then everything happened from there. And 2003 was when you got your first cap for England. Yeah. How how was that when you got that final acknowledgement? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it came at a time when I was quite old. You know, I was 26 then, and I actually made my te- test debut at 27. So um, I felt ready for it. I'd put in consistent performances over sort of four or five years, and so and I'd been knocking on the door consistently 
I knew my game well. I was a bit more mature, I think. Um, and so, I've, yeah, I really did feel ready. I didn't feel overall by it. Um, but I, at the same time, you, you've got to recognise that it's a step into the unknown. You know, the level of scrutiny, um, you know, playing in front of big crowds, uh, the, the kind of pressure of performing for your teammates and all that sort of stuff. Um, wasn't sure how I was going to react, but I, I, I suppose I felt sort of enlivened by it. You know, it, it gave me a buzz rather than inhibited me. And within two years of, of your first cap, you're in that incredible 2005 Ashes team. I mean, that must have been even more pressure and expectation and media scrutiny. How did you, how did you adjust to that? Yeah, I mean, that was like nothing else I'd ever experienced and nothing I experienced after that. You know, that was a, a time where the whole... Uh, yeah, England got behind us. It wasn't just cricket fans, it was sports fans and it was just, just the, the man on the street as well. And, um, you know, I remember the last game of the series, the last day of the series, Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room and he looked awful. Like, he looked physically ill. And I went, mate, yeah, seriously, you're right there. You look terrible. And he goes... Not surprising, I haven't slept for a month. And, you know, that was the first time anyone acknowledged. We were all going through the same thing. None of us were sleeping. Everyone was really struggling to contend with this pressure. But in the team environment, it was all fine and dandy and we're okay. Um, but, you know, the irony, the great irony is it's that pressure that you really miss, isn't it? You know, it's the hardest thing to contend with and it's the hardest thing to leave behind because with that pressure comes the incredible buzz when things go your way. And what what are those immense victories like on that scale? Well, you know, I, I, so on the one hand, it makes all the hard work you do worthwhile, and you know, you, you, everything you've achieved, you'll know that. Um, on the other hand, it prevents it presents problems for you because it's like, where do I go next? And I know how much hard work it's going to take for me to achieve that again. And um, so you're right back to the start of the process again, and that can be quite. Um, not demoralising, but you know you're kind of like stealing yourself for the for the, the next cycle. Um, and English cricket didn't has never succeeded particularly well with that. You know our high moments have almost inevitably been followed by pretty low moments quite shortly after. It's much more shortly than you expect them to be. Um, and that whole thing of winning after winning is a great challenge, isn't it? And but you have famously succeeded in that. How how did you find the you know the the picking. I mean, some the back to back ashes, two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. It's how do you do the? We won, and now we need to go again so soon. Yeah, well, I think the ashes was easy because you know we won in England in two thousand and nine, but we hadn't won in Australia for twenty four years, and that we sort of see that as a bit of the holy grail with regards to Test cricket, whether you can win in Australia. So that that was an obvious focus for us to get into. I think what was much harder for us was we got to number one in the world in at the end of twenty eleven. And then it was like, where do we go from here? You know, we've been focusing on this, getting to number one in the world, and suddenly we're up there, you know, on the top of the pile, other people trying to take us down, and everyone's just feeling a little bit satisfied and a little bit, we've achieved what we wanted to do, and suddenly we're not working quite as hard as we used to or maybe we're not quite as driven as we were, and, um, you know, that's sowed the seeds of our downfall. And how do you personally... I mean, cricket's a... It's quite famous now for having very well-known, successful cricketers speaking out about the, how hard it is mentally to kind of go through season after season and, and how it, it does cause those problems. How, how did you deal with that 
Well, it's the pressure, but it's this sort of roller coaster of success to disappointment. How did you find a way through that? Yeah, I mean, it is very hard. You know, you're away from home for long periods of time in pretty soulless hotel rooms, not really being able to go out and get away from, get out of the bubble. Um, and I work very closely with our, with our team psychologists. So I started, started doing a lot of mindfulness and meditation um, and really sort of just, just a number of strategies he was helping with me, me with just to keep my head above the water. At times it felt like I was going to be enveloped by it. Um, uh, and, you know, as you say, we know that a lot of people did really struggle and some of whom we knew about and others you didn't know at the time. They were doing a very good acting job when they came in in the morning and despite all of that, behind closed doors, we were really, really struggling. Do you think it's got easier for people to talk about those issues or do you think it will... It's very individual. It would always be hard for some people to, to talk openly. Well, you know, I think it's much easier for people to talk about it after the fact. I still think it's quite hard to talk about it while you're in the middle of it because, as we know, like high-performance sport, you know, a lot of it's about pretending you have no weaknesses. You're trying to, you're trying to sort of, you know, kid yourself that you're invincible. Um, and so it takes a lot to admit, no, I'm, I'm struggling here. And, and, and it takes very sympathetic and careful management because... Um, you know, you've got to rebuild that player up if they've if they've sort of hit rock bottom and they've been man enough or woman enough to admit that they're really struggling. The way you handle that is really, really important, I think. And when you took on the captaincy, is that something you had a role to play in or is that mainly by other of the, the, the coaches and the sport staff? Um, I don't think I played that role particularly successfully, to be honest. You know, I, I think... Um, I really felt like one of the principles of captaincy I felt was like it's really important I have empathy for what people are going through because um, effectively they need to want to be led by you and if they don't feel you care about them then are they really going to care want you to lead them um, but I at times I struggled with that I was just too much going on and to, you know to, to be thinking about where everyone was was difficult um, and if I had my time again, I'd probably try and do that a bit more effectively. What do you think are the attributes that make a great captain? Um, that's a good question. I, you know, I think everyone does it differently, don't they? But um, I do think you, you've got to find a way of connecting with people. So that empathy thing was my way. Well, I was trying to do it that way. Um, other people can do it through you know, being incredibly charismatic or whatever, or incredibly intelligent or whatever. Um, but I do think also, like, you, it's really important you have a sort of a willingness and an inquisitiveness to keep learning, you know, and not pretend that you know it all. I don't think that's a trait that people respond particularly well to. And with you, you've, I mean, your whole time through the England team, you've had some, and there always will be, I'm sure, some very strong characters and some very sort of headline-making individuals within the team. How How do you deal with those incredibly strong personalities that you know some would argue are needed in the successful teams and yeah. some would argue are you know more disruptive than their than their worth brings yeah I, I mean i can't for one moment think who you're referring to there but um <laughs> i don't think of any specific person <laughs> uh look I, i'm a big believer that you've got to embrace difference yeah you know, i really do think that i think teams are better if they've got individuals within that team that see the world in different ways you know that whole idea of sort of being a 
homogenized product that everyone's thinking the same way is not healthy. So you've got to you've got to encourage people to to be themselves and to be different. Um, but I do think if you're running a team that they've got to be boundaries, haven't they, in place? I mean, you can't it can't be a a complete circus. <laughs> um, and and so you know, I felt very strongly, and I, you know, this is just my thing. But if someone's what they're doing to make them happy is making other people unhappy in the team or taking the team further away from winning or performing well. Not only is that a problem, you're not doing your job if you don't address that problem. And, and obviously, you know, we had a few instances within the team where that happened. Um, you know, those, are, those instances are tough to go through, but if you go through it the right way, it does send a very strong message to everyone else, not just in the team, but playing the game about what's okay and what's not okay. And similarly, when you when you look at the the fantastic coaches you've worked with across the years and various degrees of success, what what do you see in and when that when that relationship is working really well, the coach uh, along with the team? Um, well, again, you know, they're, they're very different types of coaches. You know, I, I was lucky enough to work with some incredible coaches. Duncan Fletcher, first of all, who was a very sort of paternal figure for us um, and, you know, really took me under his wing and was a very wise old owl. Uh, Andy Flower, who was very driven, um, very passionate. I think he and I sort of worked quite well as a captain and coach because we, you know, we were very different people, but we connected well together. Um, and then most recently, Trevor Bayliss, who I was working with in a different capacity, but just, you know, you should never underestimate the ability of a coach to make it look like everything's under control when nothing's under control. And I, I think he was brilliant at that. You know, he just had his floppy hat on, his, his sunglasses on. It's all okay. It's all absolutely fine. And, you know, when you're under pressure, the last thing you want as a, as a player is coach running around like a headless chicken going, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And... Um, yeah, three very different coaches, slightly different philosophies, but all able to make their mark and they wanting to do and wanting to say, and that's obviously the crucial element. And you've talked about, especially the 2009-2010 Ashes team being the best prepared team. What would you mean by that? I just think we had a real clarity in terms of how we were going to go about our business and win in Australia, and it was it was counter to what, a lot of people thought we should do. So, you know, in that sense, uh, we, we'd sort of come up with this plan of, and we knew we couldn't play them at their own game. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we did prepare really well for that tour, um, and that, that stood us in good stead. But we also had a lot of players that were really clear about what their, what was needed of them in the team environment, but also, you know, how to get the best out of themselves as well. That sort of self-reliance was really important, I think. And when you retired in 2012, was that a hard decision to come to? Well, you know, a lot of people say it was sort of premature, but I I never felt that. You know, I I felt, um, you know, your your situation's always changing, but I'd spent seven or eight years not seeing much of my kids. Um, I... I'd sort of achieved everything I wanted to in the game. You know, I wasn't England's greatest cricketer or anything like that. Um... You know, Michael Vaughan had captained England more times than me. But I just felt like, you know, I, I set out as captain to, to try and get to number one in the world. You know, I wanted to win the Ashes in Australia. And I, I kind of looked at the next cycle and went, what am I really going to get excited about here? And I just couldn't feel it. And so as soon as you get to that place, you kind of know your decisions are already made for you.
And did you at that point think you would come back in at some point in a different role as you did? Or did you think you were walking away and cricket was behind you? I, didn't, I never felt that cricket was behind me. You know, I think immediately it was about, you know, reconnecting with home and just taking a bit of time off. But, um, you know, I knew I'd have opportunities in the media, which has been a fantastic thing to do. But I, I always had that sort of ambition of I need to do something worthwhile here that that feels like I'm being challenged in a different way and so when that opportunity came to to be director of cricket on the one hand I was quite daunted by it because I was like you know we're not on the surface we're not in a great place at the moment but I just felt like more than anything I, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't take this on and even if it failed at least I'd probably learn quite a lot in the in the process. And arguably it succeeded very well as, as England's as World Cup champions at the very least. But you must have seen in that time, and it, I assume that was the ambition, to really turn things around and, and put England back near the top where they should be. Well, you know, I think when you work in the media, you, you notice certain things. You know, being out of the team environment, out of the bubble, and you kind of go, come on, you know, we should be able to do that or we should do that. And so to have the opportunity to, to put that into action was fantastic. Um, but, you know, I think my reflection now is actually more on how little I knew rather than how much I knew. You know, there was just such a step into the unknown, you know. And this was coming from, a obviously, a playing background, but I didn't know nearly enough about all the different elements that go into high performance, you know, whether it was coaching, whether it was science and medicine, um, whether it was what we really needed in terms of player ID and all that sort of stuff. So it was just this great learning experience for me, which I absolutely loved. Um, and yeah, we were able to have some success along the way, but um, you know, success is never—you can never take success for granted. You can, no one can ever ensure you're going to have a successful period of time because there's another team out there is trying just as hard as you, is training just as hard, and um, you know, there's a lot of things need to fall in your favour to be successful at high-level sport. And then you sort of famously stepped down to do to spend time with your wife and your two young boys. That, I take it, that was an easy decision, your wife being so ill. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, that obviously hit us all for, for six and I, and I think um, really forced us all to look at our priorities. You know, I'd spent the last 15 years of my life just focused on cricket, really, and, and always expecting family to sort of play a secondary role to that. And then suddenly Ruth was ill and I'm like, number one, God, actually... When push comes to shove, this is the important stuff. And I can't quite believe I didn't realise that enough at the time. Um, and also, um, you know, dealing with illness and unfortunately having to deal with death and grief has been um, an, another incredible step into the unknown for me and the boys and um, uh, a challenge that no one wants to have. But, uh, you know, it's a challenge you have to sort of try and overcome in your own particular way and realising that everyone grieves differently and um, and that you know, ultimately death affects us all at one stage in our lives or in the lives of those that are important to us. Yeah, it's been amazing to see, obviously, you and the boys have done a lot for the charity in Ruth's name and, and I mean, it's really impressive to see how they're in that situation and finding some good out of... Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I think that that's always been my my sort of instinct is how can something good come out of this situation and I was very lucky that Ruth was brave enough to be able to talk about some of the stuff before she died you know like her not just her legacy but kind of if we were going to launch a foundation what did she want us to focus on and you know 
what she wanted for the kids and all that sort of all those really horrible hard conversations thankfully we had them and that gave me a a real sense of direction in terms of what Ruth wanted but also you know how we could create a worthwhile legacy for Ruth and and one that allowed her name to to carry on um and her values to carry on and for my boys to feel you know really closely connected with that as well and you sit here now as Sir Andrew Strauss. <laughs> I know it's still funny. Yeah, very still funny. <laughs> yeah, I did. I got a phone call from Theresa May actually, which was quite surreal and oh. extraordinary. Um, so, uh, so that was lovely, f- you know, for her to say as part of her resignation honours that um, she wanted to um, to honour me for for my contribution to the game, etc. Uh, you know it's it's funny it's one of those things you will be aware of this it's not something you ever look to achieve is it and it's not something you can because it's very arbitrary but um I I remember that whole day just walking on cloud nine I just could you know I actually felt incredibly proud and I knew that my family would be incredibly proud and all those people that had sort of invested me in time as well well enjoy that day because you very much deserved it cheers thank you very much thank you for your time today I'm Catherine Granger. This is Medals and More, the podcast getting behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. As well as presenting this podcast, I'm the chair of UK Sport, an organisation set up to support athletes and sports to compete and win medals at the Olympic and Paralympic Games. But how do we do it? The National Lottery obviously helps hugely, but it's more than just money. So let's ask the experts, the coaches of Great British Sport. Hello, my name is Paula Dunn and I'm the head coach of the Para-Athletics Programme. Actually, I don't have to inspire them. They're generally very inspired and very driven by the time they get to me. Um, So my job is just to really keep emphasising what the key goals are for the year. But the inspiration and the motivation, you know, I'm I'm really fortunate they they come generally really well equipped with all those um, qualities. And most of the athletes have known most of them up to 10 years. So you know what motivates them. You know what they need to do if they're having a bad race or if they had a good race. You know your reactions. Um, maybe you've got to have a really tough conversation with them or if it's an arm around the shoulder. Um, yeah, so it, it, is, it is difficult, you know, because we'll go and travel with a team of 50 athletes, 30 staff, and, um, and then you, you've got to make sure that you're in the right frame of mind when you see that person because they'll make a judgment if it's, you know, you, and you don't want them to walk away thinking, oh my gosh, you didn't care. So I'm always quite, um, I think I'm good at just making sure that I touch base with everybody and I see every athlete wants to finish competing. Sometimes I'm the one that's being more realistic and giving them a, a real like guidance of where they are and what the focus was for everyone in those competitions. It's impossible to be a PB shape in every competition. Um, but, uh, you know, when you go to a championship, you know, it's really not the time of distance is the medal that's the that's the big focus and um, and if you can get a pb and a world record that's a bonus but they the goal is always to go and get a medal that's what we judge by you know that's why people make the judgments but i always look at pbs and seasons best do you know i think that to me gives me a lot more confident if a person comes to a championships and runs a season best or a pb and doesn't win a medal, there's no more you can ask of them. They produce their best. When you when you start, when I look back when I got the job in 2012, how I was in 2013, my first championships, and how I am now was completely different. Um, I've just learned, you know, I've learned the art of delegation. You know, before I felt it was all down to me. I realised that it's impossible. I've got a really good team of people, so I'm now empowering them then to go out to do their jobs. Um, 
you know my communication skills is so much better um, you know I have team meetings while we're at the championships get a really good team of people around you and also get people who are willing to challenge and tell you the truth so don't always get people who are going to agree with you because that's not the way to learn so I've got a team of people who, who love to check and challenge me and if I can justify things to them I'm, I'm no on the right track so that would be my, my big tip is get a really good group of people around you who will be honest I've just learned um, and evolved um, and I think I've become a better head coach over time so hopefully in 2020 I'll be perfect <laughs> Hiya I'm Greg Baker I'm the head coach of British Power Table Tennis to get them to deliver when it really matters and I think that is the part of the job that excites me and it's bringing the, the right people at the right time together to get those athletes to deliver so what I mean by those right people is the right coaches the right practitioners um, having the right operational staff having the right people in the office so really bringing everyone together to to complete the jigsaw if you like to make sure that when it really matters we can give the athletes the freedom and the time to express themselves to win uh, and deliver the performances that they deserve it's really understanding what each individual athlete needs wants and motivates them at different times so really getting to know what makes them tick understanding how they operate when under stress and under pressure um, and all, but also how we as coaches operate under stress and pressure and how we're behaving um, when it is nitty-gritty and we need to make some key decisions but the time you spent with athletes I don't think there's it, for me it's the biggest part of high performance sport the relationship between coach and athlete and the more time you spend on that the more you're going to get to know the athlete the more that trust will be involved uh, and the more that you'll be able to go the extra mile for each other when it really matters so that relationship is key to, to really make sure performance is there day in day out but also again when it matters for us at the Paralympic Games but in the head coach role now for 10 years um, and I, I know I, I, the, the role of head coach and the role of leader keeps evolving over those 10 years and for me the biggest change is that you don't control everything um, as a head coach now especially in these days and it's about giving the coaches practitioners athletes the freedom and space to be able to make their own decisions uh, and I think that's changed significantly over the years whereas the maybe 10 years ago the head coach was very maybe controlling wanting to be the technical coach the tactical coach the, the the mental coach if you like but you've got to really work with the people and manage the people around the program to make sure that it's not you running the show yes you're making key decisions but you've got to have a team around you and I think the leadership now is it's inspiring people to do their work. It's inspiring people to make decisions, critical decisions, um, and that's what it's all about. How you lead one person is not necessarily how you lead somebody else. You've really got to get to know them. If you get to know them um, and understand what makes them tick in sport but also outside of sport to build those relationships, I think you'll create this bond and connection which is so strong that it will help towards gaining that performance when you really need it. Seeing people grow, and they grow from being a, say, a young boy, young girl into a, a senior leader, um, you know, an athlete that might, you know, want to be, gets told a lot of things when they first come onto the program and then it's actually making those key decisions themselves and wants, wants to take ownership of their training programs, wants to take independence. And when you see that that person grow and then they go off to do all the things outside the sport, which again, if you'd have, you've asked that athlete 10, 15 years ago, would have been impossible. That's when you, it's a sense of pride when you see that. You see that the athlete is developing, you see that they're, becoming a, a great human being as, a, as a, not just a, a great athlete and for me that's that what gets me out of bed in the morning because you're not just developing athletes you're developing people to be the best they can be as a, as a human being So far in this series of Medals and More I've spoken to legendary Paralympian Tani Gray Thompson about her career on and off the track heard from Max Whitlock on how his sole sporting focus is now on a third Olympic gymnastics gold in Tokyo and talked winning, retiring 
and starting a family with Helen and Kate Richardson-Walsh. This is Medals and More, the podcast getting you behind the scenes of Olympic and Paralympic sport. I'm Catherine Granger. Download and subscribe. You won't miss a moment.